And just so I have a reference of who you are and how you spend your time, how many of you have ever seen the show Fixer Upper? Okay, good. I figured that a lot of you know what it was. If you haven't seen it, you probably have heard about it. Now, those of you who have not seen it, if you just watch one episode, you will have seen them all. That, that's, that's pretty much true. Now, what the show is, is this couple out of Waco who helps a family or an individual or whatever find a house, but it's pretty much a fixer-upper type house. They purchase the house and they make plans on renovating the house and making it brand new through renovation. So it's a fixer-upper house. And so the couple that is going to purchase the fixer-upper and work with this, this couple that does the renovation, they work through the plans, they talk about what they're going to do, they make all kinds of decisions through the entire show about how the house is going to be renovated. And then Chip and Joanna, they get to work renovating the house. At the end of the show, it's pretty much the same thing every show, right? The couple shows up at the house that's been renovated and they can't see the new renovations, they can't see the house fixed up because all they can see is this big billboard in front of them that effectively acts as a blindfold. So all they can see is the old house, what it used to look like. And this is the moment, those of us who have watched the show, that we wait for. This is the moment we love. This is one of the reasons we keep watching the same episode again and again and again. Because, because of the emotional reaction to what they see. And even though that couple has planned it, they've made all the decisions about it, they've imagined it in their mind's eye again and again what it will look like. The moment that billboard slides out of the way, they realize they could not have prepared for that moment. No matter what they thought, no matter what they imagined, when they saw their new house, it blew them away. And you see these emotional reactions to their renovated home. Some cry, some gasp, they laugh, they, they hug each other. It's an amazing moment. And those of you who like the show, that's one of the things you love about it is the reaction of people and their emotions to that moment for which they could not prepare no matter what they previously knew. This morning, when we read this passage, we are going to be witnesses of John standing before Jesus and seeing the proverbial billboard moved out of the way. And he is going to see Jesus and we are going to benefit from his response to Jesus. And you think about John. He walked with Jesus he spent time with Jesus every day for about three years. He saw Jesus do all kinds of amazing things. He saw him heal people. He saw him do miracles. He saw bread and fish turned into thousands of pieces of breads and fish that he could then feed thousands of people. He saw all kinds of wonderful things with Jesus Christ. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, where he got to see a glimpse in the glory of Jesus Christ. I mean, he has been with Jesus. He has seen amazing things with Jesus. He saw Jesus crucified on the cross. He saw Jesus come out of that grave alive, resurrected from the dead. He saw Jesus Christ ascend to heaven to be with the Father. He saw everything you could possibly see, and he knew who Jesus was. But it could not prepare him 
for this moment. When Jesus Christ was unveiled to John as Jesus is. And we get the benefit of seeing that unfold. And I'm praying that the emotion and the reaction of John that we see in this text would so touch our lives that we will not be the same. We'll keep coming back to the same episode again and again so that our hearts are stirred by the vision of Christ. So let's look at Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to do this a little bit differently this morning. We're going to start reading in verse 9. And we're just going to read verse by verse and phrase by phrase. And work through this together as if we're watching it unfold before us. So that's how we're going to work through it today. And so let's start reading in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation or in the suffering and in the kingdom and in the endurance in Christ, in Jesus. I came to be on the island which is called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John tells us I'm on the island of Patmos because I stood for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and that's what got me on this island of exile. And he says, I'm identifying with you, the church, as your brother and your partner in the suffering, the kingdom, and the endurance in Christ. I love how John identifies his relationship to the church that he's writing. He's writing seven churches, and in a sense, we're going to see that he's writing this down so that all local churches can read this message from Christ. And he is telling these churches that he is their brother. He is communicating with them that he is a part of a family, which they are a part of because of Christ. He says, you church are my family. And we, because we are a family united by Jesus Christ in this world, this side of heaven, are going to go through difficulties. And so we are a family who are partners in tribulation. When you have become a part of the family of God, the word of God makes it very clear that it is very probable that we will encounter difficulty and trouble and suffering because we are the family of God this side of heaven, waiting for the kingdom of God to fully come. And so he says, you are my family. We are part of this suffering together. We are a part of the coming kingdom together. And he's saying, because we are family, because we're going through difficulty, yet we know the kingdom is coming. We are people who endure in Christ for the return of our king. And that's how he describes the relationship he has with the church. You're my family. We're going to walk through this together. We're looking for a kingdom that's coming, and we are going to wait for Jesus to come again together. I was reminded of just how significant this is yesterday morning. I was hanging out with a friend of mine here at the church for a couple hours. We were out just hanging outside doing some outdoor work together. Our time together became a moment of just sharing some things that are going on in our lives, just talking about what's happening in our walk with, the, with Christ, in our time with our families. We just start sharing, and, and we end up 
spending about half an hour just talking about life. And we prayed together. It was one of those moments where you're like, you can't help but pray right now. Because what just transpired between us, we've got to talk to the Lord together. And so we prayed. And we went back to work doing our thing. And every once in a while we talk about things. When I walked away from that moment, it became so abundantly clear to me. I'm not supposed to do this life alone. You know, he's encountering challenges and difficulties. I'm encountering challenges and difficulties. We're sharing about those. And we shared about those as brothers in Christ, family. I was able to share my heart, he with me, just brothers, talking about what we're facing. And in, in talking about what each of us are facing in this life, this side of heaven, we were reminded of the kingdom that we're a part of. That everything that's happening this side of heaven doesn't define who we are or where we're headed. And that we can wait on the Lord. We can be faithful. We can make it. This is not all that there is. And we can trust the Lord through this. And I walked away from that thinking, man, I'm so grateful for the family of the church. And how significant it is to be able to walk together with another person who wants to walk with Christ. And share my struggles and my challenges. And be reminded I'm a part of a kingdom that's coming. Whose king is going to return. Who is, who is worth waiting for. And it just blessed my life. And, you know, this morning's passage just highlights that experience. And I want to tell you, if you're here in this church, and the local church has not become for you family, I want to encourage you to recognize that it is family. That if you've decided to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you have been grafted together as a part of the family. And these people sitting around you are really your eternal brothers and sisters, a part of the same family brought into the same relationship with God by way of faith in Jesus Christ. We are family. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do. I've seen people through the years take one of two approaches to church and the concept of being family. I've seen people take the approach through the years of, I'm going to wait for somebody to reach out to me. I'm going to see what happens. I'm not going to let anybody in until there's no other option. I'm going to protect myself from the risk of getting to know people at a level that might be hurtful if it doesn't go like I hope it would go. And I'm going to step back and I'm just going to hold reservations back here before I jump in. I'm just going to see what happens. And more times than not, you know what happens? They see things from a vantage point that is so skewed because of their own reservations that they have reasons building up in their minds of why it's safer to remain on the outside. And they never take the plunge. And what they typically do when I start talking about things like church being family is they begin to say, yeah, I know that's true, but you don't know my experience. And they begin to list out those perceptions of why it's not what I'm saying it is. But here's the thing. None of our experiences define whether or not we are family. Jesus Christ defines that we are family and we are to allow his definition of who we are to determine our experiences and so the other approach is just to jump in 
God says we're family. I'm going to start treating my fellow believer, this man, as my brother in Christ. And I'm going to share with him about family matters. You know, there are some things about your family that only your family knows. And all the rest of us are really glad for that. When we become family through Jesus Christ, here's the thing. We begin to be able to share things about family matters, what's really happening in my life. And here's the thing. You cannot decide to wait until it feels right. You have to act on the basis that Jesus says you are family and start walking together. Because we're going to have difficulties and we cannot face the difficulties of this life like Jesus intends us to face them alone. That's why he made us brothers and sisters in Christ. You just got to jump in. Don't, don't spend any more time waiting on the sideline for somebody to come beg you to be a part of the church family. No, jump into relationship and say, hey, I want to get to know my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to walk this thing out so that I can say to my church, you're my family. I'm in this no matter what happens together because I know there's a kingdom coming and a king who will rescue us and we can wait for him together. I just want to encourage you to do everything you can to move forward to the experience that Jesus defines. We are family. All right, let's keep going. And I came to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So on Sunday, he's spending time in worship. And he heard... A, behind him, a great voice as a trumpet. Now, I want you to think about this. John is worshiping the Lord, and all of a sudden, behind him, whatever posture he's in to worship, maybe he's on his knees praying, maybe he's standing, raising his hands, he's singing, who knows what he's doing, but he's worshiping the Lord, and then behind him, he cannot see it, a voice that sounds like this blaring trumpet comes out of nowhere. Now, can you imagine what that'd be like? So close your eyes and imagine you're standing there worshiping the Lord and all of a sudden the sound of a voice like a trumpet comes out. Did you imagine it? You got a good imagination. That's remarkable. I mean, can you just think about for a second your word? Boom, right behind you, this massive voice, like this great sound of a trumpet just comes upon you. It's incredible. Incredible. And this is what happens. The voice says, what you see right in the scroll and send it to the Seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So you're worshiping the Lord, and all of a sudden this voice booms out behind you like a loud trumpet and says, whatever you see, you need to write it down and deliver it to the churches. I suspect at that moment, that voice has your attention, and you're looking for a pen and paper to write it down. So he issues forth this command. And John then, verse 12, he says, I turned to see the voice which was speaking with me. I think that's courage. 
He's worshiping the Lord. This booming voice echoes out loud as a trumpet. Write this down. What you see is like, okay, I've got to turn and see what I'm supposed to see. And courageously, he turns toward that voice. And he says, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, was one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe, girded about his chest with a golden belt. So he turns and he sees the figure of Jesus dressed in a long stately robe. Across his chest is this golden sash displaying royalty, power, authority, a kingly look about him. And he says, he saw that chest, this golden sash around his chest, and he says, and his head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. He turns and he sees Jesus in this long robe, this golden sash around him in this royal, regal look. And he looks at his head and his hair is as white as wool, as white as snow. He sees immediately in this moment of seeing Jesus, this wisdom and this power and this authority coming from him. And then he says... His eyes were like flames of fire. He sees Jesus standing there in that long robe and that golden sash, his hair white as snow, white as wool. And he looks at his eyes and he sees his eyes and from his eyes are coming flames of fire that can pierce you through. You cannot hide from his sight. You cannot disclose anything from you, from him. Everything that he sees, he sees fully. You cannot escape his vision. His eyes are like flames of fire and his feet were like bronze as burning in the furnace. Have you seen bronze that has been heated to the point where it's liquid? It shines so bright it's hard to even look at. He is seeing Jesus standing there in a long robe with a golden sash across his chest, his hair white as snow, his eyes like flames of fire and his feet are, are just glowing with the heat of burning bronze as if he's saying to John, I am the one who brings forth irrevocable judgment. My authority upon which I stand cannot be withstood by any single person. He's blowing him away, seeing this vision of Jesus. And it says that he, his voice was as the sound of many waters. If you stood by a rushing waterfall, he gives us another visual or another way to think about his voice. If you stood by a massive waterfall, the crashing of that water on the rocks all around you, all you can hear is the water. If you're standing there with somebody, you can yell and scream and their voice is drowned out. When Jesus Christ speaks, he silences all other voices. When he speaks, nothing else can be heard. He secures every distraction when his voice goes forth. It's the only thing that John can hear. And it's like the crushing of water against the rocks on the ocean shore. It is so loud, it is deafening. His voice is reverberating in his heart and mind. And in his right hand, he had seven 
stars. And in his, in his, and from his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus is standing there in a long robe with a golden belt around his chest. His hair is white as snow. His eyes are flaming fire. His feet are bronze, glowing, red, hot. And he sits there and his word is like his voice, is like the crashing waters of a waterfall. And from his mouth, those words coming from his mouth appear as a sharp, double-edged, long sword, ready and able to pierce your heart, to cut right to the attitude of who you are and what you think so that everything about you is laid bare, coming from his mouth as a sword that can cut right to the center of who you are. His appearance was like the sun shining in its full strength. When John looked at Jesus for this split second, he soaked in this vision of Jesus standing stately before him in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest with white hair as white as snow, eyes like flames of fire. His voice like the sound of a waterfall. From his mouth coming a double-edged long sword and his appearance, his faith, face shone like the sun in its full strength. John realized in that moment when he looked at Jesus Christ, I cannot behold him but for a moment or he will burn me up. My eyes cannot behold the glory of the sun because Jesus Christ in all his glory is like the sun in its full strength burning right through who I am. John could not prepare for what this moment meant for him. No matter how much he knew Jesus, no matter how much he could imagine what Jesus would look like when he heard that voice from behind him, no matter what he conceptualized in his mind that he would see when he turned to look at Jesus, what he saw took his breath away. It destroyed him. Look at what happens. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. When John saw that momentary glimpse of Jesus Christ as he is, John's only response was to fall at the feet of Jesus as if he is dead. He is terrified. He is horrified. He is trembling. He is broken. He is cut through to the heart. Everything is laid bare. Jesus has seen everything he is, everything he's done. There's not a thing that John could say that could make sense or, or really make remedy for everything that he has been. He is cut right to the heart. He lays himself before Jesus' feet, right before those burning bronze feet. That powerful, stately figure standing, hovering, hovering above him. And John is terrified. And then John feels Jesus' right hand touching. Look what the word says. And he placed his right hand upon me. Now think about that. You hear this voice behind you like a trumpet commanding you to write something down that you see. So you think, I've got to turn and see. But there's no way I can prepare for what I'm going to see. When I turn and see it, it floods over me. And in a moment, I find myself on my face as if I am 
dead, terrified, shaking to the core, cut to the quick of everything I am because of the person of Christ and all his glory. And the next thing that happens is Jesus puts his hand on your shoulder. Have, have you ever been in a place where you're really scared or you're nervous about something, you're in the dark coming around the corner and then somebody puts their hand on your shoulder? That does not help. I can just imagine John, he's terrified. He's seen something he could never have prepared for. He's laying before Jesus as if dead and Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder. Can you imagine John starting to shake and quiver and he is terrified. In this moment of seeing Jesus as he is shaking in terror with Jesus' hand placed upon him, the words that come out of Jesus' mouth are not what fit this moment. You see, Jesus in all his glory, his, his irrevocable place of judge over all things, his word that cuts through every other voice, his mouth has a sword that comes through that cuts through every single life. His eyes pierce through every single person seeing all that they've done and we're all laid bare in terror. And in that moment, John is completely and most terrified, shaking with terror. Jesus placed his hand on his shoulder. These are the words that come out of Jesus' mouth to John in that moment. He says, do not be afraid. Now the way that this is written in the original text emphasizes this idea of the translation. Do not be afraid ever again. Do not continue in fear. Do not be afraid ever again. Now, I'm, if I'm John, and that's me, I'm thinking in that moment, I need more than that. Because I'm still really scared. Because I've never imagined what I have just encountered in the person of Christ. And so Jesus continues, and Jesus says, do not be afraid ever again. I am the first and the last. John, you've been with me all those years, and you saw me, and you know that I'm in control, but you have never seen me like you see me now, and you thought I was in control based on what you saw then, but now, but now you've seen me. You ought to never doubt again that I'm in control of the beginning and the end and everything in between. I'm in control. He says, I am the one who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and hell. John, I am alive. I died, but I rose again. You saw me ascend to the Father, but you didn't see me like this. 
You believed in that moment that I had overcome death because you saw me come out of the grave, but you didn't see me like this. Now that you have seen me as I am in all my power, in all my glory, in all my sovereignty, in all of who I am, now that you have cast your glaze upon me, your gaze upon me, and you could not handle it for one moment, but it laid you bare, dead before me. Now that you have seen me, you know I am alive like you could never imagine. And I overcame death so that I hold the keys to death and hell and you don't have to be afraid ever again. John, you've trusted in me as your savior and now you see me rightly as your king, the king of everything. And you don't have to be afraid ever again. I told you that I would save you. And if I have told you that I will save you, you are saved. You don't have to be afraid ever again. I told you that I would redeem you. And if I've redeemed you, the one who is glorious above all things, then you have been redeemed. I told you that I would shed my blood for you and bring life where there was previously death. And if I have made you alive, then you are alive. I told you that no one could come against you because I would be your protector. And if I told you I will protect you, then you have been made safe. John, don't ever be afraid again. That's Jesus. That's who you've believed in. That's who you've trusted. And Jesus told John to write this down so that you and I could see him and know we don't ever have to be afraid again. Ever. Look what he said. Therefore, write, verse 19, what you have seen and what is and what is about to come after these things. Now, don't you think John in that moment was anxious to get busy writing? Jesus asked John to write this down for us so that we might be reminded that whatever we have seen Jesus to be, it should all culminate into who Jesus is. So that as we place our trust in him as a family of believers who go through difficulty together looking for a coming kingdom, we will not give up. We will never be afraid again because of Christ. Now, Revelation is full of mysteries, right? There's a lot of things in there that are mysterious. So I'm very encouraged by the next, the, the last verse in our passage, verse 20. Now, as for the mystery of the seven stars which were in my right hand and the seven lampstands, golden lampstands. So Jesus is going to tell them about the mystery. I love that because John, at this point, would have no idea what the seven stars are on the right hand of Jesus. No clue. He would have no idea what it means that Jesus is standing in the midst of seven lampstands. He would have no idea how to figure that out. No way to determine what in the world that means. Who Jesus is, John gets. He falls dead before Jesus. He gets it. 
When he hears Jesus say, you don't have to be afraid anymore, he gets why that is because Jesus Christ has become his savior and his king. But John has no way of knowing what the seven stars are and seven lampstands are except that Jesus is gonna tell him. So Jesus is gonna tell him what they are and we're gonna see that throughout Revelation. There are gonna be mysteries in Revelation that Jesus tells John and then John tells us and we're gonna know what they are. There are gonna be mysteries in Revelation where Jesus tells John something but John is told not to tell us. We're not gonna know. And then there's gonna be mysteries in Revelation that we have no idea if John knew or not and we're not gonna know the mystery there. So Revelation is gonna be full of mysteries that are revealed and mysteries that are not revealed. What we're not going to do is give a revealing of a mystery that Jesus doesn't give because the mysteries are held by Christ and revealed by Christ when Christ wants to reveal them. So that whether a mystery is revealed or whether a mystery is concealed, all mysteries point to the one great supreme mystery of all, the mystery of the gospel, which has been unveiled in the person of Jesus Christ that God was reconciling all people to himself by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross, to rise again from the dead, so that if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, a sinful person can be forgiven, delivered from death into eternal life, and has a king that will return to take he, him or her home. The mystery of the gospel is supreme, and all other mysteries point to Jesus Christ, whether they're revealed or not revealed so that we might be a people in the light of all mysteries who are encouraged to, to gravitate towards and cling to the one great mystery, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now Jesus tells John what the mystery is of the stars and the lampstands and he says, the seven stars are the seven messengers or angels, whether they're pastors or whether they're actual angels is not near as important as the fact that the vision that John got are of those stars being held in Jesus' hand. What Jesus is telling us is that he holds in his hand the very message that the church needs from him. He is going to deliver to us as his church exactly what we need to know about him to remain the people of God, the family of God, awaiting a kingdom of God from a king that's coming to restore it all. We can wait on him. He's going to deliver to us exactly what we need. And then he says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he says that the seven churches he is in the midst of. So you get the picture of this mighty, amazing, all-powerful Jesus Christ who tells his people, I am everything you could ever thought of and more. You could never prepare to see who I am. I'm in your midst. I'm with you. And if I tell you I'm going to take care of you, you have been taken care of. If I tell you that you've been forgiven, then you've been forgiven. If I tell you that I'm going to protect you, walk with you, be with you, tell you what you need to know, you can trust me. I'm in your midst. We know this picture is intended to give us as a local church every reason to believe we don't ever have to be afraid again because Jesus Christ, the great and mighty King, is with us. When we see Jesus, you know what we're going to do? We're going to worship him. We're going to fall before him and we're going to say, my life is yours. 
When we see Jesus, you know what we're going to do? We're going to worship him, and he is going to light a fire in us so that we are a lampstand that gives off light to the world. Any of you use your little flashlights on your phone? That's like the most used feature on my phone. I'm always using that. I'm thankful for the flashlight, but it dawned on me today I shouldn't be thankful for the light. I should be thankful for the battery. You know? When Jesus says we are a lampstand and he is in our midst, the only way that we give off life is if we get fuel for the light. And the fuel for the light of the church is seeing Jesus Christ. When we gather in this place, Jesus Christ will fuel our light to the world and we will be a witness. And together we will wait for his return because we know as a church, that in our most broken moments, when we had every reason to fear God and his judgment on us, he came beside us and he put his hand on our shoulder and he said to us, you don't ever have to be afraid again. I hold the keys to death and Hades. You can trust me.